I hate outlines. I, th I find them to be a, a, a big waste of time for me. But, but So it drove my professors crazy because as long as I had in my mind a clear picture of where I wanted to go, I would sit down and start writing and within uh, two or three, four hours I would have a five to ten page paper. Magically, I don't, I don't know how that happened, but it always seemed to work out. Uh, as I said, I always felt as, as long as I had a clear idea of where I wanted to go that, that my papers, whatever I was doing, would always work out. God, in our passage today, had a plan for the nation of Israel and was using Habakkuk to be his voice in the darkness. This passage is one that is a pivot point not only for the book of Habakkuk, but also between the Old and the New Testament. You see in chapter 1 how Habakkuk's complaint to God, and, and, and the way that he was crying out to God, what, what's going on here? And it drives him then to chapter 3 where he's giving God all of the praise. So let's stand for the reading of God's word here in, in Habakkuk 2, uh, verses 2 through 4. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not up upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, as we uh, dig into this text, Lord, I, pr I pray that you would make this plain to us. L allow us to see this pivot point in this book between the Old Testament and the New Testament and even between Habakkuk's heart of where he was at. Lord, I pray that, uh, that through this message uh, your glory would be made known to uh, the people here and whoever listens to it. Lord, that you would be glorified through the words that, that I've written here that I'm going to present this morning. I just pray that, um, Lord, that you would uh, just speak through me now. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the great, the great thing about making lists, as I said earlier, was that you have a clear picture of where you're going. I remember when I was younger, my, we, we would go on family vacations, and and uh, we would go, one, one trip was to the East Coast, and we were out there for two weeks. And, and, and this whole time, I don't remember my dad ever looking at a map. Uh, he never, we, I don't remember a map being in our car, but seemingly we got to where we needed to go, and, and we never got lost. I don't know how that happened. I also remember back in the 90s, there was this semi-new invention of the Internet. And, and when I was going someplace and didn't, I, I didn't have the directions that my dad did, the, the awareness that my dad did. So I would have to 
I would go to the internet and go to this website called MapQuest. Some of you may know it. Others of you are a little young for that. But, but on MapQuest, if you were going any, any place that was of any distance, the map really didn't do a whole lot for you. You would just see a blue squiggly line going from point A to point B. The real directions were in the left and right turns that it would give you. And it would tell you exactly where you needed to turn and how, what the distance was between those turns. And so this would give me a plan of where I was going. But point number one, we need to make a plan for what's taking place in our lives. The, fir the first thing about this is not just mentally making a plan, but we need to write that down. When we write down our plans, we have then breathed life into them. It's, a, it's, it's almost like a constitution, at the, the constitution. They, they say that the, the constitution is a, is a living document. When we write our thoughts down, we've breathed that, that same life into our words. We can, we can do a lot of things with those words then. But this doesn't mean that our plans are going to happen exactly how we had planned them out. Rarely does this happen, that they're going to, to turn out exactly how we, how we planned. God did the same thing with Habakkuk, though. Look right here in, in, in verse 2. He's saying, make uh, make it plain on tablets. So God has his plan, and he's telling Habakkuk, his voice in Israel or in Judah, to write it down. God modeling, is modeling this for us here. What you see is, is Habakkuk complaining in, in chapter 1 and God's response to that. And Habakkuk has a second complaint, and God's response to that is, write this down. God is providing his vision for the nation of Judah, of what's going to be taking place in the next few years. It also gives us, writing, our, writing down our plans also gives us the opportunity to manipulate these plans. Now, this isn't a negative manipulation. This is uh, like, like when I was in, um, in grade school and we would go to art class and we would get a lump of, lump of clay. And we were told to to make whatever the assignment was. I remember making ashtrays and, and sand dollars and little bowls and different things with the clay. But, but as, as we made those, it never turned out exactly right the first time. You could, you could start over and, and, and mash it all back together. You could smooth it out. You could smooth out the, the rough edges. The, we can do the same thing with our plans when we write them down. Second thing we need to do is to tell others about it. Once you have thought about these plans, you need someone to talk to you about these things. For those that are married, your spouse is a good, good place to start. Also, talking to God about these plans, maybe, maybe this isn't in the works for you. Maybe God has other ideas for you instead. It's interesting that God is modeling this for us, but God doesn't need someone to bounce his ideas off of. You see, in the Trinity... They're a cohesive unit. They don't need to check in with one another to see exactly how these plans are going to take place. They already have all of the answers. Again, we get this, we get this formula directly from our text this morning. God says, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. 
by taking the, these plans to God. We are giving him permission to, at least within our own minds, to, to work within those plans. How, how hard is that for us, though, to, to give somebody else the authority to, to work within those plans? That's a hard stumbling block for us at times. When we're talking to someone else, a friend, a brother, a sister, a parent, a spouse, about these plans, it, it gives you a great opportunity to, to build that relationship, to allow that other person to speak into your life. Here, in our, here though, in our passage, Habakkuk is the one who is receiving the vision. He's told to write this down. For what purpose? The reason is simple, so that others can read it. Now, as I was studying for this, it was interesting. Some of the commentators thought that, that this was written on big, giant tablets. We know that it's written on tablets, but they think that it was written on big tablets, so that as people pass by, they wouldn't stop and read it, but could read it as they walked. If someone was on their journey, uh, just like we do, uh, we're, we're going on vacation this week, and we're not going to stop every time we see a billboard. But we can see what's ahead because of what the billboard says there. In the same way, the people could read this vision that God had for Judah, and they would, they would read it and then hurry to wherever their destination was so that they could tell others about it. This message was of great importance to the nation of Judah. The third thing we need to do is make our plans in pencil. Remember, we learned in chapter 1 that in every and all circumstances, God is the one directing the affairs of our universe. Large and small, he's directing everything. Our plans are no different. When we make our plans, we must also mentally, again, allow God to have his say. Because he's going to anyway. God's going to do what God wills at any point in time. He doesn't need to ask our permission ever. I, one, one way to illustrate this is, is that I may be offered a job, and this job may be a lucrative one, one that would be very beneficial to my family. In, in, in every way, it seems like every door is opening for me to take this job. And if I take this job and, and, and then after a few months the employer decides that they don't need my position anymore and I lose my job. This was not in my plans. This was not in anything that I could ever foresee. But it was always on God's calendar. God always knew that this was going to take place. God says in the next verse, for still the vision awaits for its appointed time. This appointed time is under God's sovereignty and under his providence. This is where we as men and women have gone off the rails at times. We lose the vision that God has for us. God is telling us to catch this vision that he has. The vision for our lives is going to be one that is different than that of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, sorry, and, but in many ways can, can be very similar. 
we though have this idea that we, as men and women, are in complete control of what is happening in our daily lives. While this is true, we don't decide everything that is happening around us. Some of the things are out of our control. And while our decisions have real consequences, both good and bad, we don't decide all of these things. When we think that we decide the affairs of our lives, we, and we have left God out of this, God will still bring his plans and timing to fruition. So, when something bad happens in our life, we, then we're suddenly asking, well, why, God? Why is this happening? I remember uh, it was almost five years ago. Oh, it was probably about five years ago now. Five years ago, uh, my wife, Becky, was pregnant with our third child, Noah. And uh, everything seemed to be going smooth and, and was going smooth. We went to one of the one of the doctor's appointments, and when they did the ultrasound, they saw that, that one of his kidneys was significantly larger than the other. They didn't really have an understanding of why this was taking place. As we continued through, throughout the pregnancy, uh, the one kidney kept getting larger and larger, and the other one just kind of stayed the same. When he was born, they, they still didn't know the extent of, of, of the issues. Now, they, they had some ideas, but they didn't really know the whole extent of it. And so he had to go through a bunch of testing, and some of it was kind of painful for him. It ended up not being a huge deal for him, but he still ended up having to have surgery. This was not in the plans of his parents when, when we found out that Becky was pe pregnant. This was not under our control, and yet somehow we felt like there was something, that, something else we should have been doing. God uses these issues in our life, though, that come up for his glory, some of which we will never understand the reasons why. God is not only showing us how to cast a vision, but also he's calling us to wait. So be patient while you wait. This is probably where I struggle the most. I, I, I may be one of the most imp impatient people that I know. I, I like things the way I like them, and I want them done a certain way how I, I like them done. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm a dictator in my home or at work, but, but it, it, it wells up within me once in a while. It's funny that, that I'm so impatient because I work well when things don't go my way because I get so much practice at it. It's interesting, as my impatience goes up, so does my anxiety. My anxiety gets, level goes up so high that I start losing sleep, and, and, and I'm a big overeater. I, I, I like to eat, and, and I overeat during these times. At work right now, we're going through some big organizational changes, and, and there's a lot that is out of my control. I don't really know what's going to, what the future holds. I'm not really afraid that I'm going to lose my job, but, but what's actually happening on, my, on, on a day-to-day -day basis? And a few weeks ago, we had, we had a small group gathering with my small group, and we had a cookout, and uh, just to give you a sense of how much I overeat, I had uh, a double cheeseburger and five bratwursts, <laughs> oh, 
along with many sides and a jello salad that is quickly becoming one of my favorite foods. That's, that's, if you're looking for a definition of overeating, that's a good place to start. Let's, though, look back to Habakkuk's situation for a moment. Here's, a, here's the prophet of God seeing how bad the nation of Judah has gotten and is asking God, when are you going to do something about this? God, do you not see the same things that I do? And God answers him that he's going to raise up another nation to come and destroy them and take them into captivity. This, this, I assure you, was not the plan that Habakkuk had. It's also hard to wait for plans to come together. I get anxious for these small changes in my life, whether it's work or home. When things get hard, my anxiety goes up, and, and yet here's this prophet, knowing what is going to happen to his entire nation. He's the mouthpiece of God, and he's the one receiving the vision. Where was his anxiety level? God's second reply to Habakkuk is simple. Write this down and wait. For still the vision awaits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In our plans, we may have some semblance of control over them. As I said, our, our decisions have real consequences. Every decision that you make has real consequences in your life, both good and bad. If, if I go out of my way to build relationships with my wife and children, those are going to be, have good consequences at the end. Also, if I decide to walk down the middle of Route 30, those could have very negative consequences. But our, our decisions have real consequences in our universe. In our text, God is the one who is raising up the nation of the Chaldeans to overtake the nation of Judah. It's also hard to wait on the Lord. Let us remember that, as I said, God is the one who's raising up these Chaldeans. Habakkuk has been given this vision, and now has to wait for it to come. He can see the writing on the wall and yet has to watch the nation and people that he loves be destroyed and overtaken. What anxiety must be welling up within him. He knows that God, though, is in control of the situation and will bring his people back to a place that he promised Abraham. There will be a king, Nebuchadnezzar, that has been raised up within this nation. Nebuchadnezzar thinks very highly of himself, thinks that he's the one in control of, of world events at this point. God, though, is going to humble this king, humble him to the point that he's on his hands and knees eating like a farm animal out of a field, humbling him to the point that he then recognizes that Yahweh is the only true God. But God's not done. You, you see, he's also raising up another nation, the nation of Persia. One that, that it's interesting how much good came out of this nation. Uh, they, they had some of the first civil rights that were ever written down. 
This nation allowed other nations to go back that they had conquered, to go back to their homelands and worship how they wanted to, as long as they were paying the money that the tribute to Persia. But God's not still not done. You see, in this nation of Israel, he's raising up a young Jewish girl that's more beautiful than anyone else. Esther, through Esther's relationship with the king, the nation of Israel will be able to go back and rebuild the temple. Judah and the nation of Israel would not be in captivity forever, but only until its appointed time. There's also another, another thought about this. The idea of, a, of, of the appointed time is also seen in other places, particularly in Daniel. Let us pivot there for a moment. In, in Daniel eight nineteen, he says, God speaking here, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it, re- it refers to the appointed time of the end. Here we have a contemporary of Habakkuk, uh, Daniel, and, and we're both writing about this idea of an appointed time. The time of the end of the exile, but also a final end. One commentator had this to say, It is not unreasonable to see the appointed time in Habakkuk as referring to not only the historical defeat of Babylon, that's past tense, we know this happened, this is history, but also the foreshadowing of final and complete destruction of Babylon at the end of the age, future tense. That's what we read in both Daniel and Revelation. We could know that these are true because we can see that they've already been written about and the past things have already taken place. The last point I want to make about waiting on God is that his timing is not our timing. God addresses this saying, if it seems slow, wait for it. When we become impatient and anxious about what is going to be happening, we lose focus on God's vision for us. This waiting is the key to what Habakkuk is talking about here. If you think you've waited long enough, he's, God is saying, wait longer. If we just take a small look back to verse 1, this is exactly what Habakkuk is doing. Habakkuk is taking his post. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. He's already waiting. He's waiting for everything that God is going to say and has said to take place. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about Habakkuk and and, and this great warning that he has for us. He says, The reason why the, the vision tarried in Habakkuk's day and the mercy was slow in coming was that the trials of the people might act as a test of their character. In order to separate the precious from the vile, God used the winnowing fan of affliction that the chaff might be blown away and the pure wheat remain. Often in national trials, the furnace is heated exceedingly hot and the fire is blown upon with a fierce blast in order that the gold 
may be divided from the dross. He continues and says, those who look like true believers, while all is smooth and bright, have gotten, have given up their confidence in God when the trial has been fierce and long protracted. This is the patience of the saints. But alas, this, this is often the impatience of mere professors. And God thus makes men see what they, what they really are. They perceive what is in their hearts when they are exposed to long, continued, and severe affliction. See then one reason why troubles come upon both the righteous and the wicked, that man's true character may be discovered and the secrets of their hearts revealed. How true is that of us when we go through the trials of our life? It's, it's easy to say you're a Christian when things are smooth and bright. But what does it look like when we go through these hard times? What God is saying here in our passage is that this trial is of going into captivity is going to se- separate the gold from the dross. The, the true believers in Yahweh and those who are simply imposters. So what does this look like in our lives, though? I came across this article not too long ago about John and Allison Muter. It's titled, How Much Longer? You probably don't know who they are, and, and you probably don't know, know their, their story, but I, I really think this illustrates this very clearly for us. This article is about their son, Finn, who's three years old. He, he's normal in every way, but one, he has a genetic disorder called Hunter Syndrome. Hunter syndrome, Hunter syndrome attacks your muscle function. And, and what happens is, is you, the, these children will develop normally until about the ages of between two and five years old. So they get to see their babies born and, and watch them start to develop their character, their personality. And then by the ages of somewhere between 10 and 13, they die. Now, uh, I'm a pretty emotional guy, and, and, and a lot of times I find it easier to cry than it is to laugh. And as I read this story, I had tears rolling down my face, putting myself in these parents' shoes, looking at my own four-year-old, I'm four, seven, and nine, and how any one of my kids could have been in that same place. Allison writes, though, and I think that we should take note of this, as much as I could... Uh, as much as I wish I could escape, this is my child's story, and now it's mine. But instead of dreading the future, I'm striving for joy in the present. Not a joy as the world sees it, but a joy that comes from God himself that only he can supply. Instead of denial, my husband and I are embracing our reality. Even though we are living a story we, would, we never would have chosen for ourselves, we are learning to embrace the story that God is writing for us. Notice John, John and Allison don't have any answers of why, why this is going on. They know they're going through a trial. 
They know that they don't have long with their son, but are trusting that God has this under his control, just as he does everything else. I found, I found it interesting, the, the song selection today, I thought really played into, our, into my sermon. One of the songs was, Lord, you're all I need, and, and the chorus says, you're, Lord, you're all I need. My, my foolish heart has many wants, but you're all I need. Can we say that this morning? Those are easy words to say as we sit in our middle-class suburbia, right? But can we, are we really saying that from our heart? Lord, you're all I need. I have many wants. I have tons of wants, but you're all I need. Point three this morning, don't allow pride to rule. Let us remember not to focus so much for a moment on the smaller text, but a larger one. There's two prideful people here. First is, is particularly the nation of Judah, that's who Habakkuk is writing to, but also the nation of Israel who's already in captivity. These people are supposed to be the model for what a relationship with God is supposed to look like. And yet they failed many times. We can read that all throughout the Old Testament. But just as we do in our day today, we trust ourselves for what we can or should do. We don't rely on God until we really need him. We, we don't turn to prayer until we really need to pray. Until we have a seemingly, seeming catastrophe in our lives. These Israelites were trusting in their own holiness to get them in right standing with God. Or with the gods or idols that they've set up in their lives. The Chaldeans in the same way are being raised up by God for his ultimate purpose and fulfillment of his plan. So that he could show the nation of Israel how much he loved them. Now that seems foolish to us, but just as it says in Hebrews, a father disciplines his child as best as he knows how. God, though, is perfect in his discipline and is using this for his glory. God is in control of all the world's events. So we need to allow humility to rule. Doing this and allowing humility to rule in our lives as Christians is one of the centerpieces of the Christian life as a believer. I say this because the prideful man or woman will not submit to Christ. They will not bend their knee to who Christ is and what he's done, but will continue to trust in themselves the unwillingness to submit because of pride, that man or woman may have, uh, that man or woman may have is not submitting to the life that God is calling them to. This pride, this unwillingness to submit will send a man or woman straight to hell. This is why we must put our bodies and minds as Paul says, under control. He actually uses the word slave. 
The most mature of believers and most seasoned of men and women will struggle with pride that is within them. I can assure you, your preacher this morning struggles with pride. And one pastor, after giving a Sunday sermon, uh, went to the back of the church to greet the people as they left, and, and one man wanted to be the, be the first one to, to go up and greet the pastor, and he, and he walked up to him and said, Pastor, you know, I've listened to a lot of your sermons, and you know, this may be one of your best. I really think this is your best sermon you've ever preached. I, I just wanted to be the first one to tell you. The pastor looked at him straight in the eye and said, Sir, you're the second one the devil has already told me. You might think that, well, that's odd. Why, why would Satan tell the pastor that he's done a good job? Because our job and whatever we do is to give that glory to God in everything that we do. One of my first inclinations is to, is to give that glory to myself. When I'm done preaching, I go into the back room where the cookies are, and though I overeat, I, 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 I restrain myself. I sit and pray for just a moment and give whatever happens behind this pulpit, whatever happens on this stage, whatever happens within our lives, we need to be giving that glory to God, not ourselves. I take a moment and pray in the back and give that glory to God. You, though, can see that when we do not keep a proper vision of who God is, we will always focus on ourselves. We are incredibly selfish people. We look around and think, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, as, as we plan for our vacation, we're planning out you know, where we're going to stop and what we're going to do, the places that we're going to see. It's interesting, at work, it's easy for me to say, look what I've created. Look what I've done. Look what I have fixed. And while my hands may have been part of it, this is all, again, under God's control. Just when we think we're in control of our lives, God brings these small things to keep us in check. A former heavyweight boxer, James Quick Tillis, he fought in the, in the 1980s. Uh, he was from Oklahoma. He remembers the first day that he, he came to Chicago, and uh, this is where he trained at. When he got off the bus from Tulsa, he went and stood in front of the Sears Tower. He had a, his two suitcases in his hands and, and went and stood in front of, the, front of the Sears Tower. As he stood there, he put his suitcases down and looked up, was filled with pride and said, I'm going to conquer this city. And when he looked down, both of his suitcases were gone. <laughs> you can see how when, how when we take our focus off of God... Even for a moment, we focus on ourselves. God's response to that is jealousy. When we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, that glory is given to something other than God. We can see this in the way that Chaldeans swept through other nations. They weren't relying on who was actually supplying their power. God was the one giving them the victories in this. And yet, they looked to their own strength, their own power, the agility of their horses, the sharpness of their spears and swords to give them victory, to give them the victory at hand. They thought 
that they were the ones who were controlling their destiny. You can also see this in the nation of Israel all over the Old Testament. Moses gives them a warning in, in Deuteronomy, and write this down, Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 24. I won't read the whole passage, but, but a part of it. I think this is really good. He says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, in the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And uh, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, and the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down and serve them. Then in verse 23 he says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Now, it's, it's hard to understand what a consuming fire is. We, we don't see that. Out west, with the wildfires, they see consuming fires. They see entire forests burned down. We can see it in Scripture, though, in the life of Elijah when he battled the prophets of Baal. And, and, and each side would set up, set up their, their sacrifice to their God. And when God was done, God consumed all of the sacrifice and all of the water that was around the sacrifice. That's a consuming fire. The intensity of our focus will determine what our response to God's will will be in our lives. It's interesting, uh, a, a few years ago, we went to uh, Silver Birch Ranch, uh, where, where our church goes for family camp, or one of the places that our church goes for family camp. Uh, our men's retreat is also up there. Shameless plug, our men's retreat is coming up on October, uh, the first weekend of October, so I invite you, you men, especially men with high school boys, to come, uh, but all men. Uh, but, but we went there for family camp, and I've been up there... Uh, a bunch of times for the men's retreat, and we, we always want our kids to experience new things, new food, different flavors. We found out last year that my son uh, likes sushi, uh, but doesn't like seaweed that is around the sushi. Uh, so, we, so we try new things, and, and, and one year, probably three, four years ago now, one of the activities that we, uh, we wanted our kids to, to experience was zip lining. A zip lining, if you don't know, you're strapped into a harness and you, you swing across the forest on, on, a, on a harness and, and a strap and on these two little wheels. And you go flying, flying down this, this wire. And, and this wire is, will, will hold up to 5,000 pounds. So your car could go zip lining and be okay. And, and yet we as people are, I, I'm scared of it slightly, but... So we wanted our kids to experience this, and, and, and as we went up in the tower, the tower is about 50 feet tall, and uh, about halfway through, 
you, you stop and get your harness on and your, and your helmet, and, and we could start to see the anxiety in our kids start to get higher and higher, and they were getting shakier, and we're in a room just like this, and there's a window in it, and they keep walking over the window and seeing we're like 25 feet off the ground, and they're freaking out a little bit. And we get to the top, and then there was a commotion like a bunch of wild animals, and that was my kids starting to get more and more anxious about what was going to happen. So we, we let everybody else go once, and, and then it's time for, for Jake to go. And, and uh, it was interesting he, he walked up on the platform, and, and you could see he was a little shaky. They, we got him all strapped in, and, and he's like, Dad, I don't want to do this. Dad, Dad, I don't want to do this. And I'm like, it's going to be fine. You're, you're gonna, you just saw everybody else go. You're going to be fine. And the, the worker that was there didn't want to let him go because he kept saying no. They're not supposed to let anybody go that are saying that they don't want to go. And I kindly asked her to step out of the way, and she was very reluctant, um, but then she did, and, and, and I went to go give Jake a push, and, and he was still trying to squeeze the last bit of life out of the railing, that, the wooden railing. So once I pried his fingers off of there and, and, and got his hands on, on his harness and gave him a push, he, I, I said, I love you, son, and, and gave him a little push, and, and he screamed for maybe the first 10 or 15 feet. And now that's one of the, his most favorite things to do up there. Emma, on the other hand, uh, things did not go as well. Uh, same, same story, same, same things happened. I pushed her off, and she screamed like a little banshee, ziplining across the forest 80 feet off the, off the ground at some points. You can see how, how when, when my kids the difference between them. When, when Jake kept his eyes on me, his focus on what I was telling him, once he figured out that he was okay, that I was telling him the truth, he enjoys it. Now, he, that's, that's all he wants to do when we go up there. Emma, we just mentioned ziplining, and anxiety starts, starts creeping up within her. We need to believe we need to believe that and model that, what it means to live by faith. In conclusion, the righteous will live by faith. After the eternal sacrifice and atonement for our, of our sins through that sacrifice of Jesus, this is the foundation of the gospel. Let us uh, look back to, you, you can write this down, uh, Genesis 15, 5 and 6. Just before this, Abraham is wondering if, if he's going to have any heirs, if he's going to have any kids. And God says, and, or Moses states, and he, God, brought Abraham outside, outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you, if you are able to number them. Uh, and, and when I read this, I envision a, a, a big, dramatic pause. God's talking to Abraham. Abraham, come out of your tent. I want you to look to the heavens and number the stars. I don't know how high Abraham could count, but I envision a pause so he could start to grasp the number that God was talking about or going to be talking about. And he said to him, 
so shall, so shall your offspring be. And they believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So who are the righteous? The righteous are the ones who believe in the Lord. Again, it's easy to believe in, in God, in, in the eternal sacrifice of Jesus, when things are smooth, as Spurgeon said earlier. But what will your faith look like when it is tested, like John and Allison Muter? For a believer, this is the reason for trials in our lives. God, in this passage above, brought many trials to, the nation, or to Abraham. We can see how he brought him through the fires of, of not having kids, through the fires of taking him out of, the, out of the land of the Chaldeans and into the nation of Canaan, how he's going to bring about an entire nation, the entire nation of Israel, out of one man. What we see is that life is hard. Now, many years later, the nation of Israel is learning the same lessons. This trial that they may be going, that they're going to be going through, is to bring them back to a recognition that they need God, and that God is the only one that can bring them out of the fires of this trial, because God is the one who is in control of them. God's purpose is not simply to bring about holy living. We see in the New Testament that. The Pharisees were able to accomplish this at some level. But Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. Paul tells us in Romans 1.17, for, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice, Paul is introducing this idea of faith at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. That faith, a true faith in who Christ is, and what he has done. That Jesus, being the perfect sacrifice, came to live a perfect life. He was perfect in every way, yet died as a criminal on that cross. And would, raise, would rise three days later. That belief is what gives you the right to be called one of the chosen. Paul continues in Romans 5, 5 Verse 1, therefore, uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, justified is a legal term declaring innocence. So we are proven innocent not by anything that we can do. Nothing we do, God finds righteous. But we're proven innocent by what Christ has done in our faith in him. This is the gospel, my friends. This is such great news. Habakkuk was given the same, the same message to declare to the nation of Judah. Listen, th this trial is going to be hard. We can have faith in God because we know, we can see in our own history that God has brought us through many trials. Let us remember that though our circumstances may be different in our day, in many ways, is no different than that of Habakkuk. We have so much pain and turmoil in our world, and God is calling us to be the ones to show the world what faith looks like. What a great God we serve. Knowing that God is in control 
of the affairs that are all around us. He's in control of our political situations. He's in control of our national security. He's in control of the foreign affairs. And believe it or not, he's in control of the large and small issues in your life. 